My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Man. Hello, hello, and welcome to the last post-credit pod of 2020. I'm your co-host, Brandon Katz, senior entertainment reporter at Observer. Joining me, as always, the man with the plan, Eric Italiano, senior editor at Pro Bible. And I'm doing the introductions again because it is our last podcast of 2020. So if anyone's joining in for the first time, I want them to know who we are before they take the new year to kind of go back and dive into every single nerdy conversation we've had over the last couple of months, which I hope they do, Eric. I hope we, we get some new fans. You know, I'm surprised that people even notice it's the new year soon. I didn't think it was that big of a deal this year. I mean, I think it's always funny, and this is kind of the the hits bomb opening of our podcast today. January is both next week, next month, and next year all at the same time, <laughs> which I just thought was phenomenal. I've never heard that one. Did you make that up yourself? No, no, I saw that on Twitter. I wish I made that up. <laughs> that's really good. But as soon as uh, I saw it, I was like, holy shit, that's crazy. Wow, no kidding. <laughs> yeah, you just blew my mind. All right, yeah, that's you great. you just wrinkled my brain. All right, today we have some really cool stuff on the docket. Not that we never don't, because I say that every single time, but every single time I'm very excited. This is kind of HBO Max week in a sense. You know, Tenet dropped on kind of video on demand for Warner Brothers a week and a half ago. Wonder Woman 1984 obviously hit HBO Max on Christmas. We're going to dive into both of those, focusing more so on 80. Batman, the animated series, drops on January 1st. Very excited. Easily the most important of the three. And I re- had rewatched it shortly before it left Amazon, and I'm clearly going to go in for round four or five, ultimately. I don't know what number it is. But so we're going we're gonna to touch on Tenet a little bit now that I finally saw it after months, and Eric has, had seen it over the summer. We're going to talk about Wonder Woman 1984, but first, the news of the day. All, you know, Warner Brothers DC related today, and that is Sunday night, a New York Times article which included exclusive quotes from DC Films president Walter Hamada, basically suggested that movies like Batgirl and Static Shock may go to HBO Max exclusive moving forward, not theatrical, and that starting in 2022, Warner Brothers wants to release up to four theatrical films per year and up to two HBO Max DC films per year. So potentially up to six comic book movies, DC movies, a year across multiple platforms. Uh, Now let's tackle this in two bits. First part is Batgirl and Static Shock. I threw a tweet out there that I probably should have worded a little bit better, but it was basically saying that I think it's a mistake to put Static Shock on HBO Max exclusive. I think he could be the DCEU Spider-Man. And I think because even though he's got a great cartoon that a lot of people are fans of, the average everyday mainstream moviegoer may not be familiar with Static. So I thought going the kind of Shazam route with a reasonable $80 million budget and making it more character focused instead of CGI battles would have been a really cool thing. Let me throw back something that you and I have said on this podcast back when we were talking about the future of theaters when the HBO Max news came out and we had theorized that theaters will still exist, but we saw them being the home for sort of the big ticket films and everything below that sort of, I don't know, half a billion dollar bar or, you know, would be released PVOD. So doesn't this sort of fall right in line with what we predicted that they would do? A little bit, but one, we're not there yet to the point where, you know, theaters are only Avengers level hits. You know, we're definitely not there yet Two, you know, Michael B. Jordan is producing this movie. That That's a heavy hitting name that you've got out there. And now you're kind of rerouting to streaming. I think that's a, a kind of a bummer. And three, I think even though the grand strategy is going to be that on a long enough timeline at some point, I think Virgil Hawkins static is such a cool character with such cool ties to kind of the the future version of the Justice League uh, that he could really be a breakout character. I know it's not similar or directly comparable because Marvel had a lot of brand loyalty and awareness by the time they released Guardians of the Galaxy in 2014. But I do kind of feel uh, that, that that can be a similar unexpected breakout because it's such a good character and it's such a, a great story that has like these real world implications. So I would just love uh, to see that. In I think that a, and 
I think that comparing it, are you comparing it to Spider-Man as a general character or the Miles Morales? I mean, it could literally be both. I, I just mean more so that this youthful counterpoint uh, as a teenage superhero to these kind of established mythological crazy characters that he's with, you know, like uh, gotcha, Bat- gotcha. Batman's an urban legend. Superman's a literal alien. He's just some punk kid trying to, you know, study for chemistry before I like saving that. the world. Okay. I, I think gotcha. that's such a great juxtaposition. So you mean in terms of how he fits into the story, not how well yeah. he he does on the business side gotcha. yeah exactly gotcha. and he's and he no because he, he's not going to be as big as spider-man marvel's biggest selling character ever but he uh-huh. is this extremely quippy kind of intelligent good-hearted teenager and i always think there's room for that alongside and, and imagine imagine they got like a jordan peele to do it <sighs> that'd be cool i mean he says he wants to do original films no i know i know yeah. and i totally am not saying that that's but i'm just saying if they could get a buzz worthy african-american director and star that could have potential to be huge. If you attach the right names to it, as you just said, and continue that trend, like imagine they got Peel. That would be a huge fucking deal. That would immediately become a massive film and a shoe in to do extremely well. It would have to be in theaters then. And listen, Michael B. Jordan producing, he's got some swag. But does the average person give a shit about who- No, 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 not the average fan probably, but I bet he has some sway in recruiting director, writer talent, you know? And and, and he's just too old to play it himself, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he's like 31 and and Virgil Hawkins, I think is like 14 when he gets his powers. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, now let's go to the second part of the big kind of revelation from that New York Times piece. And that is Warner Brothers wanting to do four DC theatrical films per year and up to two HBO Max DC films per year. Eric, you had a wonderful line It was as we were just talking about this before hitting record. Yeah, well, as I said, the best way to solve their problem with consistent quality is just to put out more of them, right? I mean, it seems, <laughs> it seems like the most... I wrote in a post today for work that back when the boom was really taking hold, like after the first Avengers film and it became clear like, okay, this is how the world is going to be now. These comic book films are going to be a presence. There was a debate around whether fatigue would build in and the bubble would burst. And now here we are and both Marvel and DC are doubling down and putting out more content than they ever had. So that's clearly the way of the time. So I'm not doubting Warner Bros. there. I'm not saying it's absurd in practice. What I'm saying is that for a company who has so far been, when they put out three films, one will be good, one will be okay, and one will be shit. That has pretty much been their status quo since 2013. Man of Steel was good, BBS was okay, Suicide Squad was shit. And start over again. (laughs) Wonder Woman was good, Aquaman was okay, and you know, so on and so forth. <laughs> so you would think if I was them, I would be aiming to put out more Jokers, more Wonder Womans, and focus less on how much I'm putting out. And again, it's just the classic quality over quantity debate. And for them to choose the latter, even though they haven't yet proven that they could consistently do the former, just reeks of arrogance to me. It seems to me from the outside looking in like a decision was made by AT&T and not necessarily Warner Brothers. Like our customers fucking love superheroes. You guys are going to make more superhero content. And yet over the last seven years, which we will get to also as we continue this discussion, I would say even the most ardent DC supporter, I think would maybe concede this is partially true that they're floor of quality has been highly inconsistent from picture to picture. So for them to now say, we want to release up to six superhero films for a year, that's very ambitious. They got some starry eyes and I don't know if they've got the, uh, the juice to pull that off. I, uh, I put out in a tweet in my like tweet length review of at Eric Wonder Woman Itale on this Twitter. Guy, Hit him up. This guy, he's the best at this. <laughs> um, Warner Bros. At this point, it is clear. They are not going to create the magic of the MCU. And I got some replies being like, oh, well, just be like, not everything needs to be the MCU. And I agree. That's not my point. The MCU's magic is that everything is watchable. That's it. That is what they do well. 
I think most of their stuff is just okay. I don't think anything is mind-blowing, but it's always decent. The fact that they don't bottom out to such depths is their magic, that they are able to maintain momentum from film to film and not leave a sour taste in our mouth, which is what DC has been doing pretty much every six months for the last few years. So when I say I want them to be more like the MCU, that doesn't mean just start churning shit out. It means find your rhythm, find your balance, find what you do well, and then focus on making sure more than one of those films back-to-back has that. Yeah, I, oh, I, I oh, agree and completely. I want to ask you, when did AT&T buy them? I think it was officially approved in 2017 or, or 2018. Okay. And that's, you know, they got a mountain of debt because of it. But what was the sale for? Uh, $85 billion. That was it. Oh, my God. So, again, wow. I, I agree completely with you, too. It's like, you know, maybe you're not Babe Ruth, but, like, you're a 275 hitter, 20 home runs, about yes. 100 get RBIs. On base. Yeah, just, just exactly. get on fucking base. That's Stop worrying about the best strength. You can't hit grand slams if three men before you don't get on base. So it's like, at the end of the day, and listen, they could blow us all out of the water and completely subvert our expectations by just nailing it. It's very possible. I do think Walter Hamada knows what he's doing, but we have not yet seen a consistent enough track record to believe they're necessarily going to do so. Especially now that they're putting out more. They've already had a hard time only doing one or two films per year max. Now they want to triple that. I'm sure this will go great. And just as a, I'm sure this just will go great. A sub point of all that, Walter Hamada also said for just about every Warner Brothers movie, they're also thinking, what is the HBO Max spinoff? So, you know, a swell of content is the theme that we're getting here. And I just don't know. And yeah. I'm not a huge Greg Berlanti guy, although I think he does a lot of good stuff. He created the Arrowverse. He's working on the Green Lantern series for HBO Max. I'm sure all the spinoffs they want to do he'll probably have a hand in because he has. I think I saw his name attached to the flight attendant too, which was yeah, pretty he, good. Yeah, no, he, he executive produced the flight attendant, which is good. And listen, he's, he's definitely got some hits. I don't want to knock him. I'm just not a huge fan of the Arrowverse. And I'm hoping Same. that's not what uh, Green Lantern show is and not what but future To be fair, are. that was being done within the confines of cable TV. Now he's going to have a budget and effects that should allow him to tell more Hopefully, film yeah. quality stories. And his movie Love, Simon was pretty good. So, you know, there's hit or miss. We'll, we'll see. But the core is they're swinging for the fences. They are going for Grand Slams. Whether they connect or strike out, we will see. Uh, keeping with DC, the other piece of news from the last two days is Wonder Woman 3 has officially been ordered by Warner Brothers, Patty Jenkins, Gal Gadot, both returning. We will obviously get into Wonder Woman 1984 as the kind of big conversation of this podcast episode. But uh, yeah, I mean, threequel is coming. It's hard to talk about it without getting into the Wonder Woman conversation itself. Yeah, I mean, I would say that despite how poor we both think Wonder Woman 84 is, it would have been, it would have had to be something truly catastrophic for them to not make a third film. So I'm certainly not surprised. Is the timing of the green lighting surprising to announce it now as their film is in the midst of getting torn to shreds by pretty much everyone? Like everyone has the bad taste in their mouth currently, and, and they're like, here's another spoonful. <laughs> so I do find that a little strange, but. All that said, despite how thoroughly disappointed I was in this film, I haven't necessarily lost faith in Patty Jenkins yet. You're going to hear the name Jeff Johns come up a lot during this podcast. And Jeff Johns is essentially the DC comic writer, I suppose, or overseer who helped usher in, I believe, the new 52. And that was about 10 years or so ago. And he has since been given increasing power as they've started to 
expand into a cinematic universe, they thought, oh, this guy just did it in comics, so surely he could do it in film. I suspect that he is largely what went wrong with this and his comic book sensibilities. So if Wonder Woman 3 cedes more control back to Patty Jenkins and goes back to the not grittier tale, but certainly more grounded one that you and I both loved, I will still be hyped for this third film and do still think it's the right move. And it is worth noting that Jeff Johns obviously did co-write 84 with Patty Jenkins, but I think in late 2018 or early 2019, he did step down as like the chief kind of creative overseer of DC. So he's not necessarily as involved as he once no. was. Right, right. But Now uh, commercially, then, sorry, what, go. No, I was going to say, and he's, his name is also a name that, that comes up when uh, Ray Fisher accused the Justice League set of being unprofessional. So this guy, I don't, I'm not going to go in depth on that, but just from what we've seen, his impact on the film so far be, it's good that he's out. Now, commercially speaking, Wonder Woman 1984 opened domestically to nearly $17 million, and which is the best opening in the pandemic domestically. And HBO Max claims that it set viewership records in within the first 24 hours of its availability, but they offer zero specifics. So completely vague and you know misleading positive commentary. Uh, so... I think it's safe to say it's probably doing well overall on HBO Max, regardless of how vague and nondescript they are being. And it's clearly a very solid, impressive opening for a pandemic in terms of actual box office dollars. Having said that, so that actually kind of explains maybe why they're announcing it now, because commercially it seems to be doing all right. But And this is no fault of Patty Jenkins or the movie or anything, but I will reiterate what I said for Tenet over and over. Studios are not in the business of releasing $200 million movies that only earn about $50 million domestic or so, uh, you know, in regardless of pandemics, they, they lose a ton of money. Now, if we get at their next earnings call, AT&T, which is January 27th, and they say, you know, we can attribute 5 million plus new subscribers to HBO Max to Wonder Woman 1984, and you combine that with the box office, okay, now we're talking about some actual substantive improvement. But without that, it, it's just hard to know. We, we got to see the runway and how Wonder Woman 1984 plays for the next couple months in theaters. We got to see how many HBO Max subscribers it adds. Uh, again, regardless of the quality of the film, this is being released at a terrible time where only about 36% of US theaters are even open. So it's just a whole tough situation with multiple factors to consider no matter what movie is hitting. I would, I would venture to guess that their bottom line is they're banking on the fact that Gail Godot's version of this character is going to remain extremely bankable. And I think they're entirely right. There is no quality of film. Like no matter how bad this one was, her portrayal is so magnetic that a third one was always going to be in the cards. Yeah, I mean, like I, this strikes me as more of an investment, not so much in the franchise, but in her. This would have had to top out, let's say it's normal circumstances, no pandemic, regular theaters. This would have had to like top out at like 250, 300 million for there not to be a threequel, you know, which like a truly, never happened, yeah, which, which, yeah I, which would have never happen. It was likely a $1 billion block, blockbuster, regardless of quality again, uh, you know, had it been a normal time. So a threequel was pretty much inevitable. And to your point, are you telling me you're not going to be excited during whatever the eventual next team up is to see Wonder Woman alongside other heroes like Flash, maybe like Batman, maybe like Superman. Like, of course everybody is. Right, right, exactly. All right, we'll come back to Wonder Woman in a little bit because we really want to dig into some of the specifics about Wonder Woman 1984. But for now, we just want to touch on Tenet a little bit. Uh, Eric, you had already seen it and we did talk about it when you had seen it back in September. So you guys should just go find that podcast and download that. I have finally caught up now that it's on video on demand. And uh, I just wanted to kind of check back in with you because Christopher Nolan is a guy we both overall pretty much love and a guy we talk about quite a bit on this podcast. And, you know, seeing his latest was a very interesting experience for me because as I tweeted after I watched it, it was arguably the most unintelligible and confusing movie I've ever seen. And at no point from start to finish, 
did I have any clue what was going on at any time at all? <laughs> and like, you know, that's tough. And you I know, still kind of liked it. You know, it's funny that we're talking about Tenet and Wonder Woman on the same podcast because their fatal flaws are sort of the inverse of each other. Whereas Wonder Woman 84 is the number one thing that drove me nuts was how contrived the plot was. They literally wished their way through it. Whereas Tenet, the plot was so absurd that I didn't even know what was going on. So these are two on varying scales. Great point. Fundamental misfires in how to tell a compelling story. Tenet, I was sort of, I don't want to say ahead of the curve because it's still positively reviewed generally. But when I came out and said, look, man, this arguably has worse than some time. That wasn't really the word on the street. The word on the street was, this is the next Nolan mind blower. Like I had a bunch of people call me dumb because I didn't get the plot, which I knew back then clearly had nothing to do with me and their own (laughs) personal problems. Because this plot, as you just said, it's incoherent. And I'm curious to see how our opinions diverge because you got to watch from home. You could have paused and rewinded and, and asked your friend, Wait, what was that? I saw this alone in a theater with a mask on and was just so entirely lost, as I said at the time. I was so confused that even the set pieces were, which were admittedly awesome, held no dramatic weight whatsoever because I was just completely out to sea in regards to its plot. I think we should have done what you just said. We should have paused and discussed Instead, it was complete and utter silence for about 25 minutes until I looked over at my friends and, and I said, guys, I got to be honest, I have no idea what the fuck is happening. And everyone yeah. just started laughing really like, me neither. Nobody wanted to be the first to say it. But uh, okay, so I did have not watched it a second time, which I want to do. But I Same. now have in typical Brandon fashion, just like spent an inordinate amount of time reading about it and some of the breakdowns and explanations and theories and all that. And having read through all that, it actually has become clear that the ridiculous nonsense plot actually does fall into place. Now, you should not need a goddamn PhD in the- theoretical physics for the for your plot to fall in place, all right? That that's not necessarily good storytelling, but because it actually does connect in a way that makes sense when it's kind of laid out on paper and making sense is a stretch, it's still completely and utterly baffling. But my first point after doing all that research and having watched it once is that it is so meticulously plotted, but unintelligible in its, you know, two and a half hour form that I actually think the kind of plot constructs may have worked better as a series. And what I kind of envisioned in my head in thinking about it is dark mixed with Fauda, you know, a spy series that has really kind of interesting overlapping and very well-placed and thought out uh, time travel mechanics that could have been top tier, next level, maybe one of the best pieces of entertainment we had seen in 2020. As a two and a half hour movie with no time to breathe, barely any exposition. Like I said, I I simply could not follow it at all. So where do you think this ranks among his films? And and, and how does this change your perception of Nolan? And as you and I like to joke about his whole, (laughs) so to me and this is i still because to me this is him at his worst like this is him jumping the shark yeah so to me even though i did find quite a bit of enjoyment here and there and i still have not watched a second time which is an important caveat of his 11 feature films i rank it as 11 the the last Uh, i think i I rank it right behind following which was his feature directorial debut and that movie kind of planted all of the uh, seeds of the director he would become with his stylish nonlinear narratives. But to me here, you said something interesting earlier uh, about how the set pieces had no weight. And I think part of that was because when you, when you zoom out and you see the pieces of the movie in sequential order, we have to crash a plane to steal a painting to endear ourselves to the wife of the bad guy that we're trying to get close to, but secretly con without him knowing. The whole movie is essentially a series of what felt like to me needlessly convoluted prep work and throat clearing 
built around one of the coolest conceptual functions possible that, that is too too conceptual but, for its own good. But that was its problem. It was so focused on its gimmick that it never once took the time to actually explain it. It took the show us, don't tell us screenwriting tenant too far. Way because too far. they because they chose to simply show us how tenant works without fully elaborating on how it works or what it means or how it's like radiation sort of or something. And also Kenneth Branagh is trying to blow up the world because he has cancer. Like none of it makes sense. I feel just like I did with my opinion about the Wonder Woman. I feel incredibly vindicated that people smarter than me feel the same way that I did. Yeah. And it's, I wanted to like it so much more because it's Nolan, but it, it was hard to get through when I was utterly baffled at, at every stage. And by the way, everyone's complaint about the actual dialogue being inaudible and or unintelligible, totally correct. There was multiple times where I was like, I don't know what that person just said. I yeah. literally don't know. And his stubbornness to admit that is infuriating. Like, it's just, absolutely just infuriating. Fix your sound, bro. It's um, just not that hard. His quote, hold on, I'm going to pull up the exact quote because I wrote, uh, my headline was, Christopher Nolan prepared to die on the hill that his films sound normal. Parentheses, they don't. So his, his exact quote was, we got a lot of complaints. I actually got calls from other filmmakers who would say, I just saw your film and the dialogue is inaudible. Some people thought maybe... The score is too loud, but the truth is it was kind of the whole enchilada of how we chosen to mix it, dot, dot, dot. This quote is the most pretentious Nolan bullshit I've ever heard in my entire life to try and explain why he thinks he's right. I was a little shocked to realize how conservative people are when it comes to sound. It's not sound, it's dialogue, which is a what whole different thing. Is- how conservative people are when it comes down. Oh, you mean understand the noises going into their ear? God forbid. God forbid, Christopher. Uh, It's just, it's such horseshit from him that I am aware that he is a literal genius, but hey man, you have other professionals in your space telling you that you, that we cannot understand what your films are saying. And for you to turn around and make it a question of how inaudible viewers are willing to allow their films to be it it, it, he has jumped the shark in every which way in this film that's boiled down to his complete unwillingness to simply admit that he didn't mix it that well like you you just gotta fix the sound first and foremost and and i'm all fine with like eardrum bursting sound and score but if i can't understand your dialogue then basically the simplest foundational part of blockbuster storytelling fails because I don't understand what characters are saying. So that's, that's what he does needs to do. Step one, in my opinion, for the next project. But speaking of the next project, I think after this and after we've seen with inception interstellar and, and Dunkirk and now tenant all of which I either like or love, he just is getting too far up his own ass in terms of really, really conceptual gimmicks that often work, but maybe are a little bit of a crutch. So for whatever Nolan does next in terms of a feature film, I am personally hoping that he goes back to a kind of smaller scale to recharge, for lack of a better term. Now, you and I, our favorite Nolan movie is The Prestige. That's a $40 million movie built around two dynamic leads, not a $200 million globe-trotting, you know, sci-fi action thriller. Uh, I-, I love original sci-fi. It's definitely my favorite genre by far but I'd also really be interested to see Nolan tackle like a neo-Western, something like Logan mixed with No Country for Old Men or a a biopic of a particularly interesting historical figure or even this kind of lower budget action horror thriller space, maybe a little bit like Insomnia, just something that's a little bit smaller that he's like, okay, this is going to be character first and everything else is going to flow through from that and not necessarily something that sounds really cool on paper, but is so big brain galaxy that you lose some of your audience. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm totally with you, but where would that film exist? A film with 
a budget of that size would probably debut on HBO Max well, or something. Well, he would never let that happen. So, exactly. would have to do theatrical. But because he's Nolan, he's still going to get audiences in. I mean, even in a pandemic, Tenet's at $460 million. Now, it's done terribly domestically, but I think that goes to show you that he's still got huge cachet in terms of being able to open a movie on name brand power alone that is Christopher Nolan. Now, see, so I would sort of want him to go the other way and get back into IP so he can sort of get back to getting out of his own way and see him take on Bond. See, I obviously want him to take on Bond at some point in his career because I love Bond and he's a great filmmaker, but I just think it's so... Basic is not the right word. I mean, if you look at his best film... Yeah, but if you look at his best film, it's The Dark Knight. And there is no Nolan bullshit in... I mean, all right, yes, it is a Nolan film, but there's no time gimmick. You could understand everything that's going on. So I just feel like when he is forced to work within the construct of something that's not his own world, that is when he's at his best. I do think that helps, but I would rather see him do something else before going to Bond because I think Bond is such a conventional prestige franchise, which I love again. And I do want to see him do a Bond film, but I'd still like him to see, to see him do something a little freaky before he goes that route, because he's not going to necessarily break the mold with Bond. I'm sure it's going to be a top tier Bond film, but feel like a Bond film. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm, you know, it's curious because, if both MGM and him are for sale, I just I could almost envision Apple buying them both. <laughs> that would be interesting. And I think there there's a world where I could totally see that happening. As long as Apple commits to theatrical releases. Yeah. All right. Let us move on or actually move back to Wonder Woman 1984. No. I take what I want in return. Everyone will see. Because that's the real main thrust of today's episode. It's what everyone's talking about on Twitter. The discourse is both exhausting and hilarious and mostly exhausting. Eric, we've basically touched on it already, but I'm interested in our immediate reaction reviews right off the bat. What would you say to all the listeners? I think the best place to find that would be in our text. <laughs> so, I think that's a good point. Oh, so just last week. So, so just last week, we, uh, as the morons that we are on our film podcast, couldn't correctly pronounce the term Deus ex machina. And what we were trying to explain was how that is when something in the plot of the film sort of just appears out of thin air to advance the the plot. And I sent you a text saying it's a good thing we learned how to pronounce that because we are going to be talking about it a lot. So my initial reaction to this film was its plot was so shallow, such an egregious screenwriting sin. That no matter where it went, I was out. Once you start to wish your way through a plot, you've lost me entirely. I get that comic book films are inherently absurd. That's fine. That's totally fine. But to essentially throw traditional screenwriting out the window, which is why I think Jeff Johns is a major culprit here, because in comic books, you can be like, check out this rock that will grant our wish and create all sorts of hell. That doesn't fly in film. So taking that and juxtaposing it against where this franchise was and how its original strength was how grounded and inherently fantastical and mythological tale felt, it's one of the the most shocking comedowns in quality I think I've ever seen for as long as I've worked in film and cared about it. I think a lot of what you just said is very similar to how I feel. And my second question was going to be, what is the kind of most egregious failing of Wonder Woman 1984, in your opinion, or, or what most failed to work? And I think I'm just going to skip to that now that we're touching on the wishing stone, because that's it for me. Uh, I think great superhero movies always find a really sound explanation for why there's trouble and drama in the first place. 
X-Men explores oppression and alienation. Batman seeks vigilante justice from uh, the wound, the psychological wound of his parents dying as a kid. Tony Stark fights alcoholism and uses tech to save himself. But Wonder Woman 1984's central conceit built around wish fulfillment is one of the weaker MacGuffins in recent memory. Now, on one hand, conceptually, I think 1984's commentary on the excess of the 80s and the yearning for personal enrichment and materialistic wealth, that's effective. That's pretty good. But I think choosing the silliest, ridiculous wishing stone mechanism when you have all of Greek mythology to choose from is a massively missed opportunity from a storytelling perspective. This is a very basic criticism, and it's not exactly eloquent or articulate, but it's nonetheless true. Like you said, Eric, a wishing stone is flat out silly. And a comic book, all of those inherently silly devices don't always translate to live action. Uh, the rules of the wishing stone within this movie are completely inconsistent throughout. And it takes center stage over the far more interesting subplot, which is the, the kind of concept that Diana has lost someone, which has prevented her from living a full life for 70 years. That's character drama and like personal development issues that are really interesting to me, but they're pushed to the back by some magical rock that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So from the jump, I was immediately thrown by the catalyst for this film being something so basic and never receiving the proper background. And then its execution throughout the rest of the movie is just yep. so bizarre and almost childish that it, it took me out from the get-go and kept me out. Yeah, I mean, like, there's complaints about, like, uh, the film starts with the uh, Amazon triathlon or that mall scene, both of which are, I sort of get what they were going for. The mall I didn't scene, like the opening scene, but that's for, that's for a reason of placing pivotal moments and blockbusters on kid actors, which I, need, I think know. we need to stop doing. So that, that's, a, that's, that's a conversation for later. That's your thing. You've said this on this podcast a few times, <laughs> um, which I just find uh, to be a hilariously grouchy but apt complaints because it's like it's the truth but no one wants to say it you know <laughs> i'll be the bad guy it's actually maybe not for the reason that people think too but we'll, we'll, we'll get back to that but all that said like that's the sort of shit that i could live with like i could live with a, a set piece that doesn't work or a, a corny moment but what i can't ignore is the just the complete lack of drama that comes with using the characters' desires and having them literally say them out loud. So there is no character development whatsoever because they're just saying it. Barbara's like, I wish I was pretty and Yeah, Barbara also gets two wishes and nobody else does, which is never explained. And that's just that's a little nitpick, but is important for the rules of a movie. So I just I'm fascinated as to how they could have not just made this, but after they made such a original film that was so damn good and got so much right and how they could completely lose track of where they came from and what got them to this point. And I think kind of building off that, Eric, I wrote this in my piece for Observer in which I focused on the thing I liked most, which is the continued chemistry and dynamic between Chris Pine and Gal Gadot. But whereas fellow sequel Captain America, the Winter Soldier managed to really modernize our hero's lovably hokey earnestness from uh, Captain America, the first Avenger, by tearing down the institutions he he had placed his faith in, yet maintaining his kind of inherent optimism about humanity. I think Wonder Woman 1984 overestimates the power and runway of Diana's optimism. It actually does a, a really poor job of bringing that earnestness, which can be silly, into a more contemporary setting in a compelling way. Here, it actually does feel out of place. And that third act, I'm going to speak to everyone and everyone's going to give into their goodness, really doesn't even ring remotely as true as some of her more hokey, but but lovable and, and emotional moments in the original Wonder Woman, which where you were like, hey, that's corny, but it works. You know what I mean? Yeah. Everything that we liked about the first film is gone in this one. Now, Except for, as you just pointed out, the pair's chemistry. But what price did they have to pay? Just like the film itself. Think about all you gave up. Yes, chemistry between Chris Pine, Gal Gadot is immaculate. But to me, it feels they reverse engineered yep. 
the entire film and its plot just to bring him back. And to what I say, seeing how it turned out is, was it worth it? No, was right. this it, hill it wasn't worth, worth it. dying on? No, it wasn't. Go ahead. It was the best. No, you're right. Cause it was the best part of the film and completely needless. It actually held the film back from being what it could be. You know, if Steve never returns and they dig into her decision to kind of recede from life. That's a great emotional character uh, flaw that she needs to overcome without the help of her dead boyfriend. Plus, he's got no sort of way on the film's drama or plot. He's literally just a sidekick there to look good and make jokes and play up the romance. Their goodbye scene oh is one God. of the most untouching. This feels like a Hallmark film scenes I've ever seen in a project of this size. For her to literally just walk away and be like, Peace. Again, they are, when you're learning how to write a screenplay, you're taught show us do not tell us they told us everything she says oh i renounce my wish to steve in the background being like i'll always love you diana it is it was cringeworthy their breakup so... which is so ridiculous given how great they are together exactly so so what was the point just to get a few scenes of him trying on clothes which listen did i laugh during that montage absolutely did it serve a greater purpose no, not really. I think it was clever to flip the script and have him be the fish out of water as opposed to the last one, but it didn't actually add anything. Whereas in Wonder Woman, you really see them bond as he shows her the world of man. And this sort of harkens back to a point that I brought up when we discussed the first one on this podcast that like, yes, Chris Pine is great. And yes, Chris Pine is great in this role, but wouldn't you have rather him taken on a bigger role like a Hal Jordan? They clearly liked him so much that they regretted killing him off and sacrificed the quality of the second film just to temporarily write that wrong. They didn't even bring him back permanently. Like, there's no they realistic... They didn't even bring him back in his own body, which was such a needless development. I, I didn't like, understand that at all. They didn't even set it up so he could come back and be in the third film or be a part of her life. It was... They designed the film around a gimmick. You know, this and Tenet are very much alike, except one is the extremely smart version and one is the extremely dumb version. This is why we're pairing them together. You know, we're keeping it all Warner Brothers. Now, speaking of Warner Brothers and kind of circling back a little bit to what we were talking about at the top of the podcast, their last seven years is bumpy. And I'm just going to briefly run through it and love or hate it. I think you could admit that these are at least true descriptions about the general conversation surrounding these films uh man of steel divisive underperformed at the box office relative to internal and external expectations and convinced dc to jump immediately towards a team-up batman v superman divisive underperformed at the box office relative to expectations suicide squad pretty awful overperformed at box office but was so bad that they're soft rebooting it with james gunn wonder woman you know home run rock solid big hit at the box office Justice League, unmitigated disaster, lost Warner Bros. $100 million. Aquaman, I personally think it's silly, but its massive box office success clearly paints me in the minority, so I'm willing to concede on that one. Shazam, really solid film, not necessarily a blockbuster by any means in terms of money. Joker, huge hit, huge you know Oscar hitter with 10 nominations, but divisive among critics. Uh, Birds of Prey, divisive, underperformed at the box office. I liked it well enough. And Wonder Woman 1984, which... As we've seen in the last three weeks, Rotten Tomatoes score keeps dropping. General consensus seems to be that this is a disappointing sequel overall. So that is a pretty bumpy ride for DC And in a, it, if you had to pick one word to describe what you just said, what would that word be? Underwhelming. Inconsistent. That, that's, I think that's good. And so now the fix to that is, well, let's triple our production. So my question after reviewing the last seven years of DC is has the production company squandered the goodwill it generated with Wonder Woman or is this merely yet just another cog in what has been a con inconsistent and underwhelming machine and you know the next hit is going to swing it back to the other side of the spectrum. <sighs> I got to be straight with you, and this pains me to say it. Wonder Woman, this was such a misfire, and not because I didn't expect D 
DC to put out something bad. I just didn't expect it to come from this franchise. I am concerned about the Batman. Period. The end. Whoa. I wasn't I am, expecting you to say that. Despite how, despite the talent involved, despite the fact that it is a Elseworld story, despite the fact that it is taking place in a more seemingly grounded comic book world, they've done nothing except prove that we cannot trust them. So how can I trust them now? Okay, so that brings me to my next question because I was not expecting you to say that. Does DC need the Batman, the Flash, Black Adam? To if be the Batman universally- is not, yes. If, no. if the Batman is not a billion dollar hit, it's over. But it's even over. beyond that, do they need to be universally agreed upon hits, both critically and commercially, in succession for DC to be like, all right, now we're fucking rolling? That's a great question. Here's what they have going for them. One of them stars The Rock, who almost always turns a massive profit. So, and usually is in watchable movies. Yeah, so, it's, so again, it would take something... I mean, could you imagine not only fucking up like a iconic DC character, but doing so with the rock as your star. It's like that is so if that movie underperforms, then it, you know, start everything over. And you picked out these three films because they're supposed to be the ones that come out in 2022. Correct. Uh, So black Adam doesn't have an official date, but that's what it's expected. And I purposely left out Aquaman too, because these are three for lack of a better term, like first standalones in in the series. So, that was going to lead me to my point is that they are, you're totally right. These are, this is a definitive time for them. Cause let's look at what we have in each with the Batman. You have easily DC's biggest cash cow. And as I say, arguably the biggest cash cow in the history of film, it doesn't get any bigger than Batman. That has to be a, would you say that has to hit the 1 billion mark counting normal times? If it was a normal world, I don't think it does because I'm not necessarily someone who who thinks that like 800 million and universally beloved reviews is like a bad thing. Yeah. But it would certainly be nice after BVS, you know, when you have Batman and Superman and you can't hit a billion, something's off. Well, regardless of how we exactly define it, if the Batman is not a home run hit problems, then you have... It the, certainly needs what, to generate significant profits. Like, yes. you know, I don't want to say like and make people excited about getting two more of them. Yeah. It, it like then, if that movie doesn't have like around an 85% at least. And I hate that Rotten Tomatoes has become the end all be all, but that's a discussion for another time. Like this needs to be a universally agreed upon high quality film. Yes, like, exactly. Like, it was fun, uh, but stupid. Yeah, you know? exactly. This needs to be an eight out of 10 hit eight out of 10 fans that you talk to need to be like, that is my fucking Batman right there. <laughs> so you've got your biggest character, right? Then you have the flash, which is going to introduce a concept, the multiverse that is that they're hoping will sustain their next 10 years of film. So that has to work because yep. if that doesn't work and it's a muddled mess, people are going to be like, and you want me to invest in this for 10 more years? No, thank you. And then you have a film starring The Rock, which also should be another guaranteed hit. So not only do they, so not only do they have the weight and expectation and pressure of delivering on these characters, but there's an added filmmaking business context that makes it an even higher wire act. The floor for the Batman and Black Adam and The Flash should be incredibly high. And if they somehow fail to meet that floor on any one of them, that may finally be the death blow. I realize that superhero blockbuster franchises are the lifeblood of Hollywood and that this won't be the case because of how important they are now to AT&T's overall bottom line. But I think if two out of three of those are straight up misses, then DC should pause basically development for a couple years as they completely restructure and rethink their entire approach. Now that's not going to happen. All three could be flops and we're still going to get a ton of DC films, uh, you know, at every corner because of how important it is to the business. And I want every DC film to be great because I love superhero movies and I think they're so much fun. But if these miss the, the mark, I don't see how you can 
just go back and, and keep plugging. I think you have to just retool, restructure, and reorganize because that would have been roughly a decade of inconsistency where they swung from the pendulum so violently from like, this was amazing to this was trash. And you just can't be doing that. But do you think they pull it off? I mean, where do you line out? I just said that the Batman, which I've had faith is going to be a sort of game changer for them. They clearly cannot get out of their own way, especially when you look at how Patty Jenkins has sort of tried to angle herself against them. She came out and said that it was their idea to have that big sort of Ares third act fight in, in the first film. She's come out and said, I don't know if she said it, but it's since come out that they wanted to either cut the mall scene or the Amazon scene in this film. So she is clearly trying to distance herself from some creative choices that the studio has made. Who would you say is more negative between you and I, Eric? I'd say me, because I've got more invested in DC as a brand. All right, that's fair. I, I was going to say I'm, I'm still pretty negative o- overall with a lot of things. Oh, 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 in general or in regards to this? Kind of both. It was more so DC, but like, yeah. Oh, I would say in general, you, because <laughs> I'm more willing to forgive for obvious flaws that I sort of take as the price of doing business, right. whereas you will hold it up to a critical knife edge. But in terms of where the DCEU stands, I definitely think me, for sure. Well, then having said all that, which was which was a nice little setup, even if I, I didn't take the cake in most negative, I think I'm going to surprise some people here, especially for my kind of consistent anti- DC takes over the last few months. I think all three films have a chance of being solid to very good. But that's the problem. But that's the problem. The expectations are high and deservedly so. What tells you that they are prepared to meet them? I like the talent involved in terms of a script writing and directing standpoint for all three films. I like the concepts that I, you know, I've heard for the, the multiverse and bringing Michael Keaton and Ben Affleck. I think that can work, though it does run the risk of being too much. Uh, Black Adam, you know, the buzz around Jungle Cruise, even though we haven't seen it, which is the same director and Black a- and uh, Dwayne Johnson as Black Adam, has been really, really positive from what I'm hearing. And the trailer for the Batman Good. is probably my favorite trailer of 2020. I think it looks phenomenal. So I, I genuinely think all three might be big hits. And I think we might see a real kind of resurgence in the DCEU and the Elseworlds stories, of course, as well. I hope you're right. And look, like, it's not that they're devoid of hits. Last year, Joker was a big fucking deal. Yeah. Huge deal. It was a, you know, regardless of how it's already not starting to age well, you know, that was a game changer in the comic book world. Joaquin I mean, it was a psychological won. character it got a study. Best picture a billion yeah. dollars, yeah. Yeah, so they, and that is what I hope that they, but that requires them getting out of the way and allowing the creative talents to fulfill their own vision. Now, in terms of visions for the creative future, as we discussed, there is officially a Wonder Woman, Woman 3 coming. So I'd love to just get both of our takes on how would we approach the threequel? You know, what would we do to get back on track? Because I, I have a lot to say here, and I've tweeted about most of it, but I, I think my criticisms are fair for once. Do you know what I mean? What'd you say? Okay, so I, I think if I was had any input whatsoever into Wonder Woman 3, there'd be uh, th- about three or four main points that I would make. I would say, number one, I'd love to see them lean more into the Greek mythology connected to the character. Uh, This is a hero who has fought sea monsters and gods and demigods and mythological beasts. And Wonder Woman 1984 basically relegated her to fighting capitalism at the end of the day. And I don't think that gels with some of the otherworldly elements, especially in the New 52, that, that fans really like. Uh, number two, I would say rely less on silly McGuff- MacGuffins, which ultimately rendered the plot kind of fractured and stitched together from scene to scene. Uh, I know MacGuffins are a huge part of superhero movies, but I think there are several examples of MacGuffins that are built up, explained, and earned more so than the Wishing Stone here. I think the best example is probably Infinity Stones in the MCU, which is a really good use of it. Uh, I would say... 
in the third act, make sure to refocus the audience's priority on a central element rather than a handful of random threads. The last 20 minutes of 1984, this movie has her saying goodbye to Steve Trevor. It has her fighting Cheetah. It has her asking the entire world to renounce their wishes. It has a father-son moment between Maxwell Lord and his kid. And it sees Cheetah return to normal. That is a lot of like emotional thread to follow for just the third act of the film. And I think it just needs to be trimmed down and focused a little bit more for Wonder Woman 3. And I would say finally, better action. There is not a single moment in 1984 that comes remotely close to matching the visceral and emotional highs of the no man's land scene in Wonder Woman. I think 1984's action looks very dull, uninventive, uh, plot convenience powers kicking in at random times and then never being used again. And the CGI is really spotty throughout. So I think those four umbrella points would do well to make a, a really solid trilogy capping Wonder Woman 3. Do you think that they're going to be able to re- resist the urge to cross her over w- with more heroes, though? In Wonder Woman 3 or just in general in the future? In 3. In 3. That's a good question. There's no way. I think if they bring her to the contemporary time... Which you seems could, like it's going to be the case. I think you could probably see a cameo, at least, from someone else. I think... That would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. As you said, I would just like to see them get back to the roots of the first one and really have her with some dirt in her nails, for lack of a term. What I liked about Wonder Woman, the first one, is she was the only clean and pretty thing in that entire disgusting, mud-soaked world. And despite that, her earnestness made her feel like she fit in with that world. So that's what I want them to get back to. Get to the core of diana on the front lines i would like whether that be against a world power superpower greek power i don't care but not sort of fighting for a feeling of like love and fight or or no sorry fighting for a a feeling like truth and actually fighting a tangible threat conceptual she has metaphors exactly she has immense power immense power she could go toe-to-toe with superman at times we need to see that, unleash that. And yet the cheetah fights felt like they oh. were missing their potential. Well, because they didn't, well, they didn't spend any time building up the Barbara character. Her growth from BFF to bad guy is laughable. Also, the fact that somebody who looks like her, yeah, the idea of her being ignored by the science nerds of the world is ridiculous i don't care how unkempt her hair is or how big her frames are there's no way that Kristen wig would walk through life not getting at the very least hit on by the science nerds <laughs> the chatter which i can't confirm but the chatter is that emma stone was offered the role first that's interesting i mean she's a better actress so she probably would have pulled it off more i like Kristen wig in this though well that's a thought that you're (laughs) allowed to have (laughs) i I thought her and pedro pascal were both good for what their characters demanded pedro yes our boy pedro has anybody in hollywood at all have such a big come up as this dude this past five years I don't know, but he's really enjoyed a great rise from, from I mean, he's, to now. He's like a household name at this point. Or close to it. He's just cool, um, too. He, he's actually good, and he's actually the only character in this that films somewhat feels somewhat real. That could be because he's based on a real guy. But you could, you've met... Who, who's Maxwell Lord based on? Trump. I don't think so, man. They, this guy was introduced a long time ago. Oh, well, his version, like, like, oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He came out and like said so. Oh, okay. Well, then that, because I was going to sound like I'm pretty sure he's been around for like 30 years. No, no, no. Which he, he was, still could have been based on Trump, but Trump, that would have right. been surprising. No, but he said that he based his whole over the topness on, Tr- on Trump from that time. But, you know, his greed felt among the most genuine of all the main characters' desires. I will say, Gal Dot, who, is certainly no streep. I think she did okay here, despite the fact that the scene where she says goodbye to Steve is an absolute joke. 
I do believe her tears. I think that performance-wise, she was strong. I mean, I, I've never tuned into a Gal Gadot movie for her range. I think she's perfectly fine <laughs> in this role and what this role asks her. And I, I do not need more from her than what she's giving. Okay, so is that it? Should we rate this bad boy out of 10? I, I would give it half a lasso out of 10 lassos of truth. No, no, I, 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 would, I would give it six lassos of truth out of-, out of uh, Six? Yeah, a bad, well, that's a bad grade for me. That's, you know, that's a bad, it's a bad movie. Six is high, my guy. Well, I mean, six is 60 out of 100, you know? That's a failing grade. See, I guess this speaks to why I was not a great student, but in my brain, I'm like, well, I got more than half, so that can't be that bad. <laughs> That's actually not a bad rationalization. I, I can I can see that logic. I, um, I would say six out of ten is pretty bad. Like That's like a movie if, I wouldn't recommend to friends. Like to me, like a five is a watchable film. Oh wow, yeah, I would say like six is like on that cusp of like watchable to, to bear to bad. So I would probably give this a. I mean, before you spoke, I was thinking a three, but uh, you can four. give it whatever you want. But I, well, because I don't want to be too harsh on it for harshness sake, you know? I want to be objective and there Isn't were- The Italiano rubric can stand on its own. All right, then fuck them. Three lassos <laughs> out of 10 because that shit was garbage. <laughs> I think both of us are united regardless of what our, you know, arbitrary scores are in that if someone was not a superhero fan who wanted to know about the DC universe, we would not recommend this movie to them. Oh, my dad was, my dad was. Before we go, you want to read some of his hilarious commentary that you he texted He was absolutely infuriated. He could not believe. First of all, like, again, like my dad is a not, he, I did not get my love of film from him. Uh, he is a very popcorn guy. He'll call something slow in the first 10 minutes, <laughs> like, like this is the type of guy that we're dealing with. But he was right in this case. It was when like uh, Steve and Diana were like catching a train and he's like, what's with all this filler? And then he asked about Max Lord. Why is this guy such a scaredy cat? He's got, and this is again, true. He's got like everything in the universe. And then at the end, when uh, Diana like is speaking to the whole world. He's just like, oh, oh, this is just pitiful. <laughs> <laughs> and I also was... love how 1984 managed to make the classic superhero blue beam even lamer. Oh my God. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Holy like, shit. Like they made the trope worse and it was yeah. already a punchline. Yeah. But I do want to tell our listeners that Conceptual your dad's beam. hilarious comments and my dad's text about other movies have inspired us to start collecting some of the funnier things that our dads text us about these movies. And at some point in 2021, we will have a Brandon Katz and Eric Italiano's dad's review movies <laughs> type of segment at some point. <laughs> I will put it like this. This weekend, my family and I watched Soul, The Midnight Sky, and this. And Soul was the runaway hit. I think that's that's how I would rank them, too, with, with Soul being the best of the bunch. I'd also like to say, just very quickly, I went to school in, at George Mason, which is like 20 minutes outside D.C. So the, the metro, the subway that they ride, I, I was on literally all the time. And this is such a lame nitpick but in the background of almost every single shot you can see signs for the silver line the dc metro which was not introduced until 2015 about so i just found that funny i'm like well that's definitely not 1984 the uh the coach of the team that made the run to the final four is from my hometown frank uh frank larinaga yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. small world and then he left us for miami my, yeah, no kidding. Yeah, Sounds I nice. can't blame him on that one. All right, guys, that is it from us. If you want to talk more Wonder Woman, Tenet, DC, or anything, hit us up on Twitter at PostCredPod. This will be our last episode of 2020, but we will return with Soul and maybe a, potentially a Pixar movie draft. We're still figuring that out. Well, my colleague Cass had a great idea. He said Pixar character draft. Ooh, does Cass, does Cass want to join us for the? That's for the... interesting. Yeah, we could do that. We could do. I mean, we could do both, really, because uh, they're two entirely 
different things. But if we but do like that, that, yeah, we'll ask him to Listen, join. sight unseen, I'm taking Chris Evans's real Buzz Lightyear with my first pick, <laughs> even though it hasn't sorry. even come out yet. Dude, you should, because I will if you don't. Um, I actually, because we should do a film draft as well. I watched Inside Out today, and I had that film ranked way lower on my list than it should be. That is that is a borderline top five right there. I don't have like a list in, in front of me of Pixar movies, but I would have told you before that Inside Out is probably going to be one of my early picks, if, unless you yeah. guys take it first. All right, so we'll talk Soul, and then we'll you know do some sort of draft in the next few weeks. Then January 15th, WandaVision. Let's go. Finally, the MCU comes to Disney+. Plus. Took long enough. Yeah, yep. All right, All right guys, until then. Happy New Year, y'all. Stay safe. I'm going to make him an offer, guys. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. 